Hello and welcome to Coasting Country, the official podcast powered by the science of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. I'm your host, Brian Scott-Smith. Every year in the U.S., according to the CDC, around 300,000 people are diagnosed with Lyme disease contracted from ticks. It's the most prevalent of the tick-borne diseases, but there are many others. Ticks and tick-borne diseases have been steadily rising year on year. And to help understand the situation, the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station has been monitoring and surveying ticks for a number of years. In this podcast, we talk with Dr. Gudas Malai, a research scientist who specializes in ticks at the station. Dr. Malai, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So today we're talking about ticks, which whenever that's mentioned to people, it sort of sends a shiver down their spine, doesn't it? Yes, ticks are becoming more and more important and we are seeing increases in the abundance of different tick species and prevalence of tick-borne diseases. Over the past 13 years or so, the number of vector-borne diseases in general and tick-borne diseases in particular have increased substantially. And now, in addition to increases in the number and abundance of tick species, we are seeing increasing incursion of invasive ticks into the United States, as well as emergence of tick-borne pathogens new tick-borne pathogens into the United States. We're going to cover all of that, obviously, in the podcast because it's all very important information. The first thing I want people to understand when they're listening to this is that the Agricultural Station, for a very long time now, has been undertaking testing for, for ticks. So can you just give us a brief history of the Experiment Station's Tick Testing Laboratory and what it is that you do? Tick Testing Laboratory was established in 1990 at the experiment station following the discovery of Lyme disease in mid-1970 and years of pioneering research at the experiment station. The laboratory was initially mandated by the state legislature to test ticks for Lyme disease pathogen only. However, in recognition of increases in the abundance and prevalence of other tick-borne pathogens, the program was expanded to include testing for babesiosis and anaplasmosis pathogens. So how many ticks, doctor, do you receive on average per year at the agricultural station? And, and has this number changed? On average, we used to receive about 3,000 ticks. However, in recent years, that number has substantially increased and in some years, it has reached to nearly 6,000 ticks per year. So that's quite an increase, isn't it? Tell us a little bit about the current status of tick infection with tick-borne pathogens here in Connecticut and also throughout the Northeast, because, of course, it's not just restricted to us here in Connecticut, is it? We are seeing increases in the prevalence of tick-borne pathogens in Connecticut and throughout the Northeast and about 50% of ticks are infected at least with one pathogen. Greater than 33-34% of ticks infected with Lyme disease pathogen. Additional 8-10% to with babesiosis and anaplasmosis. Furthermore, we are seeing co-infection in ticks 
being infected with two and sometimes three pathogens. And you can imagine the consequence of co-infection in ticks that leads to interaction among pathogens in ticks and also creates difficulties in diagnosis and treatment of those who are infected with more than one tick-borne pathogen. What is the public health significance of co-infection or simultaneous infection with two or more disease agents in ticks? Co-infection plays important role both in tick biological system as well as in humans. In ticks, these pathogens are capable of interacting with each other and either they are substantiating activities of other pathogens or reducing their activities. So there is constant interaction between pathogens in ticks and eventually the outcome of infection is determined by the degree of interactions that these pathogens are having in ticks. In addition, when a tick is co-infected with two or three pathogens or more, the result is going to be that humans are getting those infections simultaneously. And because these tick-borne pathogens and diseases as the consequent, they have somehow parallel symptoms in humans, therefore it becomes the cause of confusion for physicians to determine what type of pathogens humans are infected. And as a result of confusion in diagnosis, there is difficulties with treatment of these tick-borne illnesses. Not necessarily all tick-borne diseases are treated with antibiotics. We are dealing with bacterial pathogens, we are dealing with protozoans, we are dealing with viruses, and as you can imagine, these pathogens require different type of treatments. And if a person is infected with more than one pathogens, and if that person is treated with one medication, therefore the other disease will not be effectively treated and dealt with. So it's, it's quite a science, isn't it, to understand exactly what's going on once somebody gets bitten by a tick? Absolutely. It is, it's not just a science. It, at a technical level, it is, it's quite a challenge to determine the type of infection in humans with tick-borne pathogens because, as I mentioned, a number of tick-borne pathogens or diseases present themselves with somehow similar initially symptoms. If these symptoms are not treated properly but with the proper medications, the health consequence of these types of infection would be quite grave and complicated. So explain to us a little bit more about the tick surveillance programs um, at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station that you're currently running. The tick testing laboratory was established as or within the framework of a passive tick surveillance. In other words, the program, although receives ticks from public and health department and physicians' offices and tests those and contribute to the health and well-being of the residents, it is also used as a passive tick surveillance program, meaning that all the information we gather with regards to tick abundance, spatial temporal abundance, 
take infection status and any other information that we get from these tick submissions, they are used to model tick activity and tick-borne diseases throughout the state. And these wealth of data is quite helpful in determining the linkage between tick infection status as well as tick-borne diseases and the risk of human infection. For instance, recently, by tapping into our comprehensive data set obtained from our passive tick surveillance program, we have been able to model the tick infection status and also the interaction and the link between human disease cases. And as a result, we have been able to determine the areas at greater risk of infection with Lyme disease and other tick-borne pathogen. And this program has been recognized as a unique program throughout the region that has the feasibility to use it as or to be used as a proxy to predict areas at higher risk of tick-borne pathogen in Connecticut and throughout the region. So from what you're telling me is, you know, this is why we should care about organizations like yourself having tick monitoring programs, because without this data, we'd all be in the dark about what's actually happening with these insects. Absolutely. It is very important to have surveillance programs and get the information from these programs and use it not only to have information for a particular region or on a particular region, but also the data can be used by regulatory agencies, public health agencies to come up with models and also with mitigation methods in order to deal with tick-borne diseases. The program that we have here, the Passive Tick Surveillance, has now been verified by regulatory agencies and public agencies and it is being other states are being encouraged to establish similar programs in order to deal with increasing problems associated with ticks and tick-borne pathogens. In addition to passive tick surveillance that we have here in our institution, we recently in 2019 established active tick surveillance as well. So In our active surveillance program, we are collecting ticks at least from 40 sites in all eight counties from April through end of October. These ticks are examined, tested, and the data is also shared not only within our state, but also throughout the region in order to come up with a comprehensive program to deal with tick-borne pathogens. We'll get on to that in just a moment. I want to ask you, as you say, the monitoring program has been going for a substantial amount of years now. Obviously, many accomplishments have come out of the tick surveillance program. Can you just discuss a couple of what you would consider to be some of the the major accomplishments that you've had with this? Some of the major accomplishments include establishing a comprehensive data set that can be used or is being used to not just monitor, but also to determine 
the areas at greater risk of ticks and tick-borne pathogens. We have, in recent years particularly, we have determined or we have intercepted a number of invasive ticks. For instance, in 2017, we intercepted an invasive ticks coming from Africa into Connecticut. In 2018, we discovered another tick coming from South and Central America. And in 2020, we also reported a tick coming from South and Central America. These are some of the ticks that are invading or being introduced into Connecticut and into the United States. In addition, some of the accomplishment of our passive tick surveillance has been to determine range expansion of native tick species. For instance, in 2018, we reported the first established population of Lone Star tick in Fairfield County, Connecticut. This tick is a vector of a number of tick-borne diseases, and it is also associated with the illness called red meat allergy. In 2019 and 2020, we reported additional established population of Lone Star Tick in Fairfield County and New Haven County, and we are continuing to monitor the range expansion of Lone Star Tick. In 2020, in August, we reported the first established population of the Gulf Coast tick. This is a southern tick species, as the name implies, but unfortunately, we have a population of this tick species in Fairfield County. We reported this year, and as a matter of fact, it was published just yesterday, and we also discovered in September 2020, we discovered established population of Asian longhorn tick in Fairfield County for the first time in our state. And these are some of the accomplishments or some of the results that we have been getting from passive tick surveillance programs. I want to talk to you more, obviously, about, you know, native uh, ticks to Connecticut and also the invasive species that, uh, you know, we're discussing. But what's interesting in what you've just said is you seem to be finding a lot of them congregating in Fairfield County. Is there anything so far from your monitoring, from your research that is showing why Fairfield County seems to be so tick-rich? The reason that we are seeing first in Fairfield County, it is the result of rising global temperature. And because Fairfield County, some parts of the county is coastal, and the temperature is warmer, our climate is warmer compared to more northern counties. That is why we do see these ticks, invasive ticks or range expanding ticks first in Fairfield County. But as the temperature continues to increase, even by, by small degrees, we do see that these ticks are moving further north and getting to more colder uh, counties. Tell us a little bit more about like the more native species of ticks to Connecticut. You know, what are the most important ones that we should be concerned about? Currently, we have nearly 15 tick species in Connecticut and similar numbers in the northeastern United States. There are three tick species that are of importance. 
the first one is the black-legged or deer tick. This tick constitutes greater than 85% of ticks in our state, followed by American dog tick and then lone star tick. So far, these are the most important tick species in our state. But as we discussed, other tick species are gaining ground and they are expanding their range. And soon we will have at least two important tick species becoming prevalent. What would those ones be? Is this like the 10-year projection as you look forward? Correct. And one of them is the Asian longhorn tick. This tick is quite prolific. It has the ability to reproduce through partenogenesis, meaning that the uh, females are able to produce progeny without relying on, on males. And as a result, they are becoming a major problem. And uh, we not only may see in the near future increases in the number of species that we have in the region, we will also see changes in the dynamics of tick populations. And if this Asian longhorn tick gains ground in our state, as it has in states such as uh, New Jersey and New York, this tick uh, has the potential to become a prevalent species. So what does that mean for, you know, individuals, for people, but also sort of like things like livestock? Because, of course, ticks don't just go after human beings. They go after animals as well, don't they? I mean, they're just basically looking for a blood meal. So can you give us a bit of a sense of what does that mean for not just human beings, but also, as I say, for maybe animals as well in in the state? Ticks are not only important from the point of transmitting disease agent. They are also uh, important parasites. In other words, they parasitize animals and they create a lot of difficulties to their health. With regards to animals, uh, the Asian longhorn tick that I mentioned, it is primarily the parasite of domestic and livestock animals. Therefore, these ticks, even though so far we don't have any evidence that this tick particular tick species, meaning Asian longhorn tick, has the potential to transmit some of the diseases that we have here in the United States or the diseases that this tick transmits in its native range. But the mere fact that this tick is so prolific and it is so abundant and it parasitizes both domestic and livestock animals it is going to be major challenge because it causes bleeding in mammals, in animals, and it causes a lot of disorders in these animals. So this potentially could be something that livestock farmers here in Connecticut are really going to have to start looking out for now and in the future. Absolutely. It is going to become a major problem for livestock industry in the United States and in Connecticut, and as it it has been in some states in the United States so far since its first report in 2017 that was from New Jersey. Now, my understanding, and you will correct me, I know, uh, from my lack of knowledge here, but majority of ticks are like fairly passive, but I mean, there are some more aggressive species. And if I'm correct, isn't the Lone Star one of the more aggressive ones in that it will actively seek out its blood meal rather than just, you know, stay on a piece of grass waiting for somebody to go by? 
correct. We are dealing with a number of species that their behavior is more like aggressive species. So they actively seek and follow the host until they are successful in attaching and starting feeding on the blood. One of them is, as you pointed out, is the lone star tick. It is also believed that the Gulf Coast tick is also an aggressive tick species. But regardless of whether they are aggressive or are not aggressive, they have been able to find their host either through passive activity or aggressive activity, and they are able to find their host and start transmitting disease and cause a lot of health problems. One of the questions which gets raised by many people is, how long do ticks need to be attached to me before the infectious agents are actually introduced into, you know, say a person or or an animal? It is important to know that the time from tick attachment to the time that the disease agent can be successfully transmitted differs from one pathogen to another pathogen. For instance, in the case of Lyme disease, it is believed that in order for a tick to successfully acquire and transmit disease agent, that tick has to be on a host, for instance, on human, for at least 24 to 36 hours. And it is similar to babesiosis and anaplasmosis, but it is not the case for other tick-borne pathogens. For instance, we are dealing with viral pathogens, that only one hour or less than one hour would be sufficient for a tick to successfully transmit the viral pathogen to a human. Therefore, it has to do with the type of pathogen. So I suppose the advice really to give to people if they find that they've got a tick bite and the tick is still attached is one to seek sort of like uh, medical advice maybe from your primary care provider but also I suppose to try and keep hold of that tick so that the proper identification can be given because of what you've said you know science needs to be able to see what this actual tick is so that it can hopefully give a proper idea of one what it is and two what you might have actually been infected with. Correct. It is vital when we see a tick on ourselves to properly remove the tick. And regardless of what our plan is for that tick, immediately consult our physician to see if any intervention is required. And after that, we also suggest residents to submit their ticks to a tick testing laboratory to determine first what species that tick is and determine the approximate amount of time that tick has been engaged in blood feeding. And if that uh, laboratory is set up for testing, test that tick and determine the infection status in ticks. It is also noteworthy that tick testing result is really one piece of puzzle. And physicians and residents should use tick testing result as one piece of puzzle in conjunction with other line of evidence, including symptoms, to determine whether any intervention or treatment 
is required. The other thing I suppose to say or to ask you is, you're saying send it to a tick testing centre, can that be your local public health sort of like authority or do they just send it straight here to the agricultural station? And important thing is, does it have to be alive or dead? We are suggesting residents to bring their ticks to their local health department and local health departments are required to submit their ticks on their behalf to our laboratory. However, in 2020, because of the COVID pandemic, a number of health departments were preoccupied with COVID-related issues, and they were not able to participate in tick submissions. So we made an exception for residents and physicians' offices to submit their ticks directly to us or even drop off their ticks at our institution so that we can collect these ticks and examine and test these for them. And do they have to be live or dead for you to give a proper analysis? Majority of ticks that we are receiving, they are dead. Some of them are alive. So for some pathogens, ticks do not necessarily need to be alive. Even we can test pathogens in dead ticks using molecular techniques. Now, of course, we think about, you know, tick infestations and getting ticks when we're out during so like the nice warmer weather, you know, maybe hiking, etc. But the reality is, unfortunately, they're evolving and they're managing to so like stay around for longer, aren't they? Yes, they are. First of all, there are ticks have two years life cycle. Some of these ticks have capability to reproduce at a greater rate. And then because they have several life stages, Quite often, it becomes a challenge for us to properly see those life stages and remove them and present it to tick testing laboratories. For instance, black-legged tick that is responsible for transmitting Lyme disease and six other disease agents in Connecticut and throughout the country, at their nymphal stages, they are quite active. And because they are very small in size, not necessarily all of us have the capability to properly identify them and remove them and present to tick testing laboratories. So, yes, because of these complications with regards to their prolonged life stage, difficulties in identifying juvenile ticks, as well as the changes that we do see in the environment and ecological changes, all these have created a situation that we humans are at greater risk of being bitten by ticks and getting infected by tick-borne pathogens. In recent years, we are seeing tick activities throughout the winter month, which hasn't been the case in the past. Giving you an example, prior to a decade ago, we used to receive maybe up to 100 ticks during winter month. But that number in some years, in some recent years, has increased to 800 ticks. So as a result of warmer temperature and many other ecological changes. And one final thing I want to ask you, of course, it's to do with Lyme disease. And you're undertaking some very important research here, as you always do at the Kinetic Agriculture Experiment Station. It's with regards to a vaccine, but also it's a vaccine not for humans, but it's for rodents. Explain to us about this because this is fascinating stuff. The idea about vaccine is that either these vaccines are targeted to protect humans or they are targeted to reduce the infection status in reservoir animals. 
as you know, for diseases such as Lyme disease, babesiosis, and anaplasmosis, small rodents like white-footed mouse and chipmunks and other small mammals, they are the primary reservoir hosts, meaning that they provide the load of infection to the ticks. And the idea is that if we can reduce the load of infection or the prevalence of infection in rodents, ultimately we will be able to cause reduction in infection status in ticks and protect human health or reduce the risk of infection in humans. So we recently, during the last five years, we have been engaged in examining a rodent-targeted vaccine. This vaccine, as I mentioned, it is developed just to use for rodents, and we are delivering the vaccine through bait and in bait boxes. Rodents are visiting these bait boxes because they are lured by the bait, and then they are consuming, and as a result, this vaccine is creating some immunity in rodents and leading to gradual reduction in the pathogen load and infection status in rodents and ticks. As a result, they will have lesser access to the infection sources. And when do you hope to have sort of like a lot of data on this? What's your time frame? And sort of, I'm guessing it's a fairly controlled experiment by way of maybe an area or something so that you can see whether or not Lyme goes down in a particular area. Can you just give us a bit of a time frame as to when you hope to have some substantial data on that? We recently, I believe it was in 2020, we published our first result of experimenting on that vaccine. It wasn't just a laboratory experimentation, it was also field experimentation. However, like many other vaccine experimentations, there are challenges associated with that. Particularly, this is a vaccine that we are delivering through bait boxes. We we don't have access to inject the vaccine. And also delivery of the vaccine is one of the challenges that we faced. And we are hoping that as we move forward, we will overcome some of these obstacles, some of these challenges to find first more effective vaccine and then come up with a effective delivery mechanism because the delivery mechanism of these vaccines also have to do with the regulations. We have to make sure that we get authorization from regulatory agencies. We have to make sure it is safe to the environment. We have to make sure that these baits are not consumed by all small mammals because of the environmental consequence of these vaccines being consumed by non-target organisms. That is why we are working to overcome these challenges. But is it looking fairly positive so far? The result was promising, but we have a long way to go. Well, Dr. Gudas Malai of the Kinesca Agriculture Experiment Station, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about everything to do with ticks, the monitoring, the surveillance, and all this incredible work that you're doing. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. And you can find out more information about ticks and many other topics at the station's website at ct.gov forward slash C-A-E-S. 
That's all from this edition of Coast and Country. Thank you for listening, and we'll be dishing up another serving of science very soon.